I'm Will Vuano Barron, a PhD student in anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a contributor to EdgeFX, a digital magazine produced by graduate students at the Center for Culture, History, and Environment, or CHE. Earlier this month, I had the pleasure of sitting down with CHE alum and Brown University professor Sarah Besky to talk about labor, labor on tea plantations, the labor of language, and the ways in which the Anthropocene invites labor-based inquiry. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Uh, it's Monday morning, so let's talk about labor. Uh, in your work on Darjeeling tea plantations, you juxtapose spaces of labor and spaces for labor, while placing particular emphasis on the latter. Can you speak to how you understand these spaces as distinct yet interdependent? Um, that's a great question. And so in most of my work previously, like um, my, I read a book about Darjeeling tea, I, I paid almost exclusive attention to spaces of labor, right? Where places where um, the women I work with go out in the field and pluck tea from seven in the morning to four in the afternoon. Um, you know, during during most of the year, during the winter, they go out and prune these bushes, hacking, hacking, hacking at these bushes to kind of to to bring them into control, right? To make them these flat top, identifiable um, shrubs that we kind of identify as as tea. Um, and and broader broader than just my work, right? When we think about kind of an anthropology of infrastructure, or not even you know not even just an anthropology outside of anthropology, um, people who are kind of looking at infrastructure look at places where like bodies meet pipes or bodies meet um, you know oil rigs, right? To think about you know to think about labor um, labor at the site of um, the production of a thing or the or the maintenance of a thing, whether it be water or oil or tea or fill in the blank of of a, of a of an environmental commodity. Um, but it was only after, you know, I kind of wrote about spaces of labor and kind of started meditating more on, on what a plantation is, right? I mean, even though my, a lot of my work is about what a plantation is, I wasn't kind of satisfied um, or, or felt like that, that inquiry was done. I, I wanted to know more about um, how, how, what, what is the role of domestic space in the perpetuation or, or creation or making of labor immobility, right? So a plantation is a, is a peculiar form in which um, there is no free market for labor, and I'm talking about tea plantations in Darjeeling in particular. Um, there is no free market for labor. Workers um, inherit their jobs, generally from a woman would inherit the, um, her job from, from her mother or her mother-in-law, and with that job, um, the, the, a woman would inherit a house, right? So the house and the job are, are intimately linked, right? They're, you cannot have a house without a job, and you cannot have a job without a house, a permanent job, that is. Um, and so I didn't really give much thought to this. I mean, and, 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 and thinking about the structure of compensation, and workers make a, um, a reduced wage. They make a, a wage far, you know, far below the minimum wages for the state and for national, um, national regulations in India because of the provision of this house. So the structure of compensation, in a way, um, in India is a form of dispossession. So the structure of compensation I started thinking about as itself a form of dispossession. And so, so that brought me to kind of think about the relationship, right, the relationship between spaces of labor, right, that I know about, the factories, the fields, or, or you know, again, extending it beyond, you know, oil rigs and water pipes and um, 
and, 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 and canals um, to the spaces of labor, or sorry, spaces for labor, where, where workers live and where, where workers go home to sleep and eat and, and have and, and take care of their children. Um, and how and what and to ask more about the relationship um, between these two spaces and, and or maybe kind of break down a dynamic or, you know, a, a boundary between these two spaces to understand domestic space, right? Just to, to understand these spaces for labor as part of the infrastructure of something like tea, right, is, is an, in, 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 an important part of the infrastructure that helps, right, if we think about infrastructure as a material form of conveyance, you know, in my case, tea, moving tea from the fields of, of the Himalayas to our cups here on Madison, that we have to kind of consider domestic space as part of that infrastructure, and we have to consider domestic space as part of um, the marginalization of labor. So that's that's kind of what I'm thinking about um, right now in terms of this dynamic between spaces of versus for labor. Great, thank you, Sarah. Uh, let's move from the labor of plantation workers to the labor of language, so to speak. Uh, you're fresh off an engaging weekend as a faculty participant and roundtable discussant at the symposium of the Center for Culture, History, and Environment, for which the theme was E is for Environment, new vocabularies for the past, present, and future. Throughout the weekend, panelists and discussants revisited familiar terms and offered new ones for thinking about the environment in its broadest sense. During the faculty roundtable, at which you were joined by Nancy Langston and Scott Kirsch, you spoke to how terms, quote, repel. Can you please elaborate on the work that language does in this capacity? I love concepts. Like when I when I kind of think about you know when I work with my own graduate students, when I when I when I think about what it is that I do and how you know how I kind of organize my thoughts. I mean, I love to think about concepts and how concepts kind of are in the world. And concepts are, are interesting because they are both linguistic and political devices, right? They're always they're always both. And and language, you know, as as anth good anthropologists, we know that language shapes politics and politics shapes language. Um, and so. Um, and, and, and what I like to kind of think about is how power dynamics are laden, right? They're, they're laden into these concepts. And, and throughout the weekend, um, you know, each of the participants had to kind of offer new, um, new you know, synonyms or new replacements for the, the concept of an environment. And these are really interesting. But some, some of the concepts I found the most interesting were, were just ones that kind of came out of their fieldwork um, and, you know, that were in the spaces, you know, where, where they worked. Um, and, you know, for example, right, like just what, what I was really captivated with was the idea of civilization, right? So there was multiple scholars, you know, working in China talking about this concept of ecological civilization. I was really, really captivated by this concept because a civilization, right, is a remarkably apolitical concept, right? It, um, in a way, you know, it repels critique, right? And that's and that's where that kind of repelling comes, right? How can one, how can an individual, right, be a, a, a citizen of a civilization, right? Can um, can a person, can a human make claims to a civilization? And so, you know, a civilization, you know, and, and how it's mobilized, right, in China right now as ecological uh, civilization, how um, how in the in a way does that not only repel critique but repel social action or collective action um, in in China right now? And again, and I'm not a China scholar, but I was just really, I was just really captivated by that particular concept, right? A concept that that is derived, right, and comes out of engaged fieldwork in um, in these particular places where these scholars worked. Um, and so, again, so more generally, um, 
I mean, concepts, right? Concepts invite in certain forms of critique, right? Um, you know, we all feel the pressure as as scholars to invent or to to drive neologisms, and 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 I think the the question, you know, in those neologisms, right, is is what kinds of inquiry do they invite in, and what kinds of inquiry do they repel, right? Who, in a way, like whose language counts, right? And is this, I mean, is this a a concept that is so deeply derived in Eurocentric or English-based um, conceptual of the world that in a way when applied or when tried to apply um, to you know a particular kind of cultural context where you might work there is um, it may it may sound really nice but there is maybe a dissonance a con uh, cognitive or conceptual dissonance between uh, the social phenomenon which we want to study and um, in this concept that we think is really sexy and sounds really good on or looks really good on paper and so in terms of um, in terms of repulsion um, there, there's always, you know, there's always kind of a relationship there between um, a concept can can apply or, or can invite in, but in the same time, it always kind of, it always leaves leaves some forms of inquiry out, right? So, I mean, concepts in a way then are kind of utilitarian, right? They're the greatest, you know, right, a utilitarian ethic would be kind of a greatest good for a greatest number, right? That always kind of, in, implicit in a utilitarian ethic would always be a kind of a minority, right? Some, a, a group, right, that is inherently disenfranchised by the that by that uh, conceptualization, say of justice or whatnot, um, right? And so I think the question with concepts is not only what do they invite in, but what do they repel? Moving back to the plantation, as a roundtable discussant, you were also asked to present words worthy of culling, words that are obsolete, unproductive, or destructive for thinking about the environment. In this spirit, you offer the word resource. What do you find problematic about this term in the light of your fieldwork? Yeah, resources, resources is really interesting because it seems just like, yeah, resource. Like it just, you know, it, it's kind of just a, a word that we don't really kind of give much consideration to. But what, what you know, I work in tea and tea is a fascinating plant, a fascinating commodity, a fascinating thing in the world because it straddles all of these different categories, right? Tea is not considered food, for example, right? It's not often considered food in, in scholarly um, disciplines and it's not also considered food in like food safety or labor standards um, discussions, right? Um, the, the way that tea ecologically and linguistically and, and kind of um, in, the, in the labor system around tea kind of makes uh, tea not quite fit right into into existing discussions about about food right in terms of um, consumption or in terms of like kind of eating and being um, discussions that that are that are ripe right often right now in, in, in food studies right it, 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 it's material, right? It's history and it's material make it kind of fall in between categories or fall at least outside of the category of food. And, and but at the same time, so tea isn't food. Tea isn't in a way resource either because tea, um, it's, it, 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 what, I mean, what would, what it's, what would its utility be as a particular kind of resource? We, you know, we, um, we don't think about we don't think about food crops as, as resources. We think about food crops uh, as resources when they're they're activated as biofuels, for example. Say like the, if you take soy in, in three different contexts or four different contexts, like soy as 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 you know organic tofu, you know to be turned into organic tofu. Soy as you know feed for hogs in China or soy as um, a biofuel in the, in the, in the in the U in the Midwest somewhere. Right. These are three you know 
fundamentally different kinds of plants and, and because of the categories in which they, they kind of sit. Um, one is a resource, one is a food, and one is a kind of food, right? A passive food, a food for a food for food, right? A food for um, for for hogs somewhere on the other side of um, the country. I'm sorry, the other side of the world. Um, tea, coffee, timber, rubber, and fruit, right? These are perennial plants, and they straddle the line between anal the analytical categories of resource. And importantly, resource has attendant metaphors of extraction. We think about resource, we think about extraction. Um, but but tea, um, it, it, it straddles uh, the, this, um, it also straddles the line between resource, right, right, right and commodity, right? And, and commodity has attendant metaphors of constructive, or more importantly, productive labor. Um, and we perhaps, you know, we, we, we locate the genesis of tea as commodity or, or the leaf turned into commodity at the point in the chain where bodies and botanicals come together. There's something about the concept of resource that presents me with a kind of repelling quality, right? To kind of harken back to you, the, the, the first question you asked, um, that makes agricultural things not quite fit into its remit, right? Like resource in a way as a concept repels agriculture or agricultural things repels tea repels um it repels fruit but but maybe invites in rubber but but maybe not right there's we need to kind of think about that that the conceptual framework there um and in in this kind of matter out of placeness right in agriculture as matter out of place in terms of of, of thinking about resource um I mean, I was reminded this weekend about the role of ranching and animal husbandry in, as well, right? Again, productive labors, right? But productive labors in particular kinds of landscapes. Um, and there's an assumption we kind of make about, um, or we, we assumption that we make that uh, resource extraction and agricultural production, right? So again, thinking about the verbs we use, resource extraction and agricultural production have different kinds of politics. Right, the resources being extracted from the ground have a political import that makes uh, agricultural production maybe even seem lightweight. Like resource extraction is really, really important. Agriculture, like it's a little bit, yeah, it's a little bit less of, um, it's, it's less, you know, perhaps politically salient. Um, because plants are, are renewable after all. Um, but plants too are extracted from the ground, right? And that's what I would like to kind of, um, myself, I would like to kind of bring attention to and to kind of invite inquiry across the resources, agricultural, you know, conceptual, theoretical, analytical divide that we, we seem to see in the, um, in the academy, right? Because plants, right, are extracted from the ground and more, and also, right, capital and labor power are extracted from farmers, right? Disenfranchised as they often are across the world. Um, so, but, but why are these separate conversations then? If, in, 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 why? Like, how did this happen? Um, and perhaps, right, you know, the, the difference is sits in these intended metaphors that we associate with resources and agricultural respectively, right? Um, that's right, that's uh, extraction and, and production respectively, that create a kind of conceptual and in intellectual chasm, right? There's, a, there is this kind of, this space between uh, the, these two forms of inquiry. And I, I sense that myself through, through my own work. Um, right, and, the, and the, for, the problem for me rests in the idea of resource and it rests in the idea of resource extraction. Um, so we should ask, right, or, you know, in terms of, you know, trying to think about the, rep the, the, re the repelling of particular commodities or, or sorry, rep uh, repelling of particular concepts, um, how is agriculture not extractive? Or importantly, how is fracking not productive? Energy is produced as much as it is potential. To think about agriculture as extraction, I think that there is um, there is something particularly productive that could happen there because yes, it is, you know we, when we think about agriculture, we think about cultivation, okay. But I mean, 
what I mean, how I mean, how can we how can we also think about it as I mean, as extraction, what is being extracted, right, um, from soils, from bodies, from plants, and and where does it go, and and how and how is agriculture in a very acute way, in a very in a, in a way that that again the women workers that I uh, I work with on plantations sense, right, that 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 ag- extraction, right, in agriculture is in a very real sense not renewable, right, that that resources are not put back into the ground, right, that the capital is not put back into the ground. It is it is a a fundamentally extractive. Um, project and 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 that that extraction is palpable by by laborers. Great, Sarah. Well, to wrap up with one final question, let's end with a final word, and it's one that uh, one with which many of us have been thinking, um, and that's Anthropocene. Uh, so, as an anthropologist, how are you oriented or compelled or repelled by this word Anthropocene and what it represents? That's a really great question, it's a, and it's a tough question. Um, because I mean, if you yeah, if you had asked me that a couple maybe like two years ago, I'd be a little bit more like anxious about about the about the this this concept, right? Um, I mean, I was really what does it you know asking questions about what does it do, kind of hearing and seeing you know many many um, studies and cases and pieces of writing that kind of just throw in Anthropocene as a as a kind of empty adjective, and and um, I'm I'm less cynical or critical or just curmudgeonly than I, than I might've been, um, before, because I think what it, what, what Anthropocene does do is it, it is opening up spaces of interdisciplinary inquiry and interdisciplinary conversation, um, that, that I perhaps, um, I think are new and, and, and exciting, um, where, um, we're kind of bringing together importantly, kind of, um, biophysical sciences and, um, the social sciences or the humanities into productive conversations about, about landscapes, about, and about, and about labor. And, you know, for me, the, 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 the invitation of the Anthropocene is to think about, um, is to think about labor and to think about labor, um, both in its human and non-human forms, right? How do humans work on the landscape, right? And make, and, and you know, to, to make the Anthropocene, the Anthropocene, right? We, you know, what we know about the Anthropocene is it is this geological, um, you know, time in which we can't think about the environment without the the influence of people, right? People have, in a way, right? We can we can think about that as as human labor on, you know, in and of the environment. But but I think what the Anthropocene also invites us to think about is um, the labor of of non-human actors, and in a way, kind of how how nature works, right? So we can kind of think about labor um, beyond human exceptionalism you know, in the context of the Anthropocene. And we can kind of think about, um, you know, we can kind of open up the concept of, of, of labor to, to as, maybe as a way, as a, as a, as a core, as a cognate um, or, or just an associated concept with the Anthropocene to kind of help us, to help us think, um, think about complicated times and to think about, and to think about um, the, the complexities of life in this quote unquote new geological era. Well, great, thank you, Sarah. I'm Will Buono Baron, and this has been Edge of Hicks. Mm-hmm.